This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, you're listening to Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. My name is Chris Gillespie. My guest today is a biologist and author whose 2020 book, Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures, became a bestseller in both the New York Times and the Sunday Times, and went on to win the Royal Society Book Prize, as well as the Wainwright Prize. Three years later, he's back with a gorgeous new adaptation of that book entitled Entangled Life, the Illustrated Edition, How Fungi Make Our Worlds. Please join me in welcoming Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Our pleasure. So before we begin, I was wondering if you'd be able to briefly explain to the listener what the Entangled Life series is all about, what these books are, sort of broadly speaking. The Entangled Life, the shortest way to say it is, is to use the subtitle, which is How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures. These are books about fungi, um, about the way that fungi have played vital um, and often underappreciated roles in, in the history of life, uh, how they are responsible for many of the vital processes of the biosphere today, and how they will continue to influence um, the trajectory of earthly existence moving forward. It's big stuff uh, and a really, really fascinating book. And so there are so many terms in this book, and I am not a biologist, I'm not a scientist by any means, so I am going to avoid trying to pronounce most of them. So you're saying fungi, is that, is it fungi or is it fungi? It's fungi? You can say fungi, 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 um, it's really <laughs> up to you. I say fungi, but many of my colleagues say fungi or fungi. So Okay, uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have some fun with that. So before we dive into the specifics of the book, I'm kind of curious about how this new illustrated edition came to be was it always your plan to release an illustrated edition at some point or was that an idea that came to you following the success of the original book it came to me following the success of the original book but it's always been something that i've been very passionate about so much of the work of researchers in biology is um is looking at things, looking at stuff, looking at other yeah. lives, and particularly in the case of, of, of the study of fungi. A lot of what we know about fungi has um, come about because of the diligent and uh, visionary and patient work of, of researchers who have taken the time to look at them, often under a microscope. I myself have spent a lot, a lot of time looking at fungi under a microscope. And in these processes, you, you, you learn about, you get a feeling for the organisms in, in a different way. There's some kind of ambient understanding that, that, that creeps in, that trickles in. Uh, and that's something I've always wanted to play with and, and, and communicate. And um, in the first Entangled Life, I was able to include some images, but not nearly as many as I wanted to. So this has been a, a, a longstanding hope. It is a fascinating project. Um, and it, I had not read the previous book, but I had read this one. The visuals are incredible and certainly do help to illustrate what you're writing about and what you're explaining. And certainly was very eye-opening for me. The writing in this book is a abridged version of the text from the original book. So how was that adaptation process like for you in terms of, did you know what you wanted to include going into it? Or did you kind of piece that together over the course of producing the book? Yeah, it was, that was a little tricky. Um, but the way I'd written the book in the first place, I thought of each chapter, uh, and indeed the whole book, as a kind of braided stream, braiding together different parts of the narrative, different stylistic tones, you know, like more a me in the story reporting on things versus 
relaying as a kind of and more narrative voice from nowhere. So different kinds of style, different kinds of texture, different narrative strands. And for me, that really mirrored fungal life in some way. Um, fungi live their lives as networks and it can grow on lots of fronts at once. And so this is something I really enjoyed putting together in, in, in the first instance in, when writing the book. So abridging was tricky because lots of the bits of the uh, of the chapters, you know, depended on these other bits in a kind of architectural way where if I pull that one bit, then other parts would collapse. So I had to be quite ruthless. Uh, um, but once I got on my ruthless hat, <laughs> then it became um, <laughs> quite enjoyable. Uh, I just went around hacking off whole, whole parts of it, you know, like just uh, feeling quite free about it and, and, and not feeling precious when, when I, when I uh, sort of taken on board what really I had to do. So then it became quite fun. And I realized that I could tell quite a few different stories from the same original text. So there were some difficult judgment calls, but overall, the sense of shedding was satisfying. Uh, and I'm happy with how it's turned out. That's great. And then does that shredding process, like you described, does that change your relationship to the original book about how you think about it, where you're like, oh, I guess I didn't really need this paragraph or this chapter or this section? Or do you kind of feel like the first book is its own thing, stands alone, and now this happens to be a separate thing that's like sort of a sibling title to it, if you will? Yeah, I, 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 when I read through the original, then I like it more, actually. <laughs> I like it more than I did before. Now that I've, I've read the kind of slimmed down version, you know, I, mm. I, I realize how much I did need all of those things to tell the full nuanced story that I wanted to tell. So I think of this as a kind of maybe a little sibling to the original one, not in any kind of inferior way, but more that the emphasis is different, you know, that, that, that it's maybe more about the imagery, the text opens up the imagery. Um, but there are definitely nuances that it just simply wouldn't fit in this version. And for those, you know, the, the, the original is the place to go. So talking about that imagery, how did you go about acquiring these photos and deciding which ones to include in the book? I did see in some of the photo credits that the photos were from you originally, but there were a lot of other photographers uh, and individuals who contributed to the book. Because I imagine, you know, writing the book adapting the book, abridging the book is one sort of skill and talent. But then I'm assuming you probably had tons of photos. Like what percentage of all the photos you had access to actually made it into the book? Yeah. So what I did is I went around knocking on the doors of all of the best fungal photographers that I knew. Um, and those photographers sometimes are working you know, with, with cameras, sometimes with cameras with macro lenses, and sometimes cameras attached to microscopes. There's a real variation in scale there. But um, I think of them all ultimately as, as photographers, even the ones that are taking photos down microscopes. Even though they're down, when you're working down a microscope, there are a huge number of additional challenges and, and additional skills required. I knocked on their doors uh, a whole load of fungal images and I said, look, are you, you know, what could you share your your favorite images? Sometimes I, I was looking for certain things, like looking for pictures of truffles or know, the lives of truffles in a more general sense. And I might ask for those, or sometimes for psychoactive mushrooms, you know. And then there were just loads and loads of images. And then I had to go through and, and choose the ones that I thought were most vivid, and also the ones that I felt illustrated the, the ideas in the book in, in the best way. So it was a dance between the most captivating images and the ones that were the best fit. And also looking for a sense of balance. You know, there's lots of pictures of mushrooms in the world. And on the whole, most readers have seen um, pictures of mushrooms before. And of course, I was going to include pictures of mushrooms in this book, but I, I didn't want to have it too skewed towards mushroom pictures. I wanted to also have uh, maybe some less familiar type of image in the book to balance things out a bit. So that was another consideration. It was an amazing process, you know, just, just you know, gazing at astonishing images for days and days and days. I got kind of dizzy. 
Yeah, it's remarkable because, uh, like you were saying, about a lot of these images were taken using a microscope or a camera attached to a microscope. So we're looking at literally microscopic organisms or structures or whatnot, and now they're blown up to the size of this great like gift book, coffee table book kind of size. It's really remarkable seeing how like the image resolution is is great, and you can see that these things that are you never be able to see with your naked eye are now right in front of you, and they're colorful. Um, and it was really incredible. Do you have any favorite images from the book? I know it's tough to talk about a visual book like this on an audio only platform, but would you be able to describe any of your favorite photos? Some of my favorite ones are the images of. Um, lichens. They were uh, made by Toby Sprabilla, an uh, amazing lichen researcher, and they show cross-sections through lichens and reveal the intimacy of the relationship between the different partners within the lichen. And these were views that I'd never actually seen before in this kind of resolution and taken so skillfully, you know, the prepared samples prepared so skillfully that these scenes are really visible. Sometimes when you're looking down a microscope, you have to know what you're looking for, for it to be meaningful. And so lots of the time in, you know, in a research context, it's it's not always easy to, for, for people who haven't been trained to look at this kind of image to make sense of them. So some of the skill of a microscopist making images that are for more public consumption is to prepare the samples in a way where it's evident from the composition you know, that this is a living organism. And you kind of know what aspects of the living organism you're looking at while also being able to see um, what's going on inside. And I feel like these lurking images really succeed in that in a remarkable way. Some other ones that I, I, I really find um, very powerful are the images of Maria Sabina, the curandera from uh, Mexico, who the, the, the healer um, who worked with um, psychedelic mushrooms, with psilocybin-containing mushrooms. And um, there are a couple of photos of her in the book that come from the archive in her village, which were very kindly shared by the archivist, and showing her teaching young girls how to lead mushroom ceremonies and these are just very powerful images that, that i just had never seen before i don't think anyone's ever seen them before apart from the, the custodians of the archive and it was just a new view for me and, and just captured so movingly so in her, her great wisdom very evident on, on her face and in the way that she's conducting herself with regard to her students i do want to talk more about mankind's relationship to fungi around the world and throughout history because that is obviously such a major point in the book. But I sort of, thinking about the images and the visuals, because you have the, the all the photos of, of mushrooms, of fungi, of different things, some of them are quite striking and beautiful in terms of their, their color or the symmetry. There's this kind of, it's very, I don't know, powerful to see the kind of beauty that exists so on such a small scale of microscopic or, or seeing these sites that we typically would not see or would not be looking for, for those of us who are not fungi experts or biologists. But I was also wondering, because looking at some of the images, like they're great images, but I couldn't help myself. Some of them, I and I don't remember which one specifically, but I kind of found myself getting a little queasy looking at because... I was looking at the fungi and I was like, Ooh. and I was like, that's interesting. Why is this happening right now? So I was wondering how much I, I disgust is kind of a strong word. And I, I don't mean it that I'm disgusted by the images, but I think there's a visceral reaction that many of us have towards different types of fungi. Do you think that's a 
evolutionary trait that we as humans picked up to keep ourselves safe? Or is that more of a societal construct that we've just been conditioned to not find beauty in these things? I'd say it's more cultural because I mean, if you just look at the world cuisines, for example, you just mm-hmm. you know, go around the world on a whistle-stop tour of, of traditional cuisines in different parts of the world, I think you'd find very frequently that you ran into foods that that were considered delicacies in the place you were, but that you found gross um, for whatever reason. It might be in the far north, you might be eating fermented walrus blubber, you might be eating uh, a very, very slimy kind of uh, mushroom in Korea that's considered a delicacy. You might be eating a French cheese that smells so strong that actually this one French cheese that's that's actually illegal to carry on public buses because (laughs) it's such a strong smell. So I think wherever you went, you'd you'd find yourself running into the limits of your horizon of acceptable flavors. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a bit like that with these fungal images, that there actually is an image, a microscopic image of, of some moldy cheese, like you know, cheese that's supposed to be moldy. And I, I love that image. I included that image partly because when you see it, it looks so disgusting. Um, when you find <laughs> out that it's a delicacy that you'd eat without thinking, you know, for your lunch, probably. Like many, at least many of the people I know would, would eat it for their lunch. Then... Um, there's an interesting dissonance that sets up, you know, uh, uh, between the foul and the fragrant. And um, I like to play with that a little bit because I think it's important for us to examine those those inherited perspectives that are so often inherited from our cultures that guide the way that we think and feel and imagine with regard to other life forms on the planet. So I do use that a little bit in the book, sort of deliberately. Um, but also because I think it's fun. I think it's fun to, to feel those feelings of disgust and then wonder why um, one's disgusted. I think it's um, a healthy confusion. Yes, absolutely. I did. It, certainly, I appreciated being able to uh, be curious about that and think about that. And it does certainly change or change my perception a little bit about just being more attuned or aware of these types of organisms just in my own backyard after reading the book uh, i went for a hike and i was just amazed by the different kinds of fungi that i saw on the trees on collapsed trees on the stones they were everywhere uh and i was like wow i I really wouldn't have been paying attention to these things the way that i i am now paying attention to them so it's it's very eye-opening i think i was also wondering in terms of you know, the cultural differences and the different perceptions of it. Are there any cultures that kind of value the aesthetics of mushrooms or fungi in the way that so many of us in the Western world, like, you know, we'll give flowers as as a gift or we'll have flowers on our clothes or decorations? Is there anyone that really owns that kind of uh, and appreciates the aesthetic of the mushroom, of the fungi? So you can find this kind of mycophilic attitudes in um, Central and Eastern European countries, uh, also in East Asian countries. So in, in Japan and Korea and China. And uh, in Japan, actually giving matsutake mushrooms in, in boxes as a kind of, is, as a gift is, is a thing that happens. And um, these are very highly prized uh, mushrooms with a very unusual flavor, quite utterly themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, I just talked to a friend who just come back from Yunnan province in China and at a market in a town there, they'd found 800 species of edible mushrooms on sale, um, which is remarkable. If you go to the largest supermarket in North America or, or, or in England, I, I'm pretty sure there wouldn't be 800 species of the total number of species uh, represented <laughs> in the supermarket of animal, plant, fungus. I, I doubt there would be as many as 800, let alone a small town 
with 800 just mushroom species alone. So I think that's a kind of indication of fungal enthusiasm. And um, and if we take that as an indication of fungal enthusiasm, then when I go into most supermarkets in England, I find maybe one or two types of mushroom for sale. Um, I think we have a nice comparison there. Yeah, and, and in China, I know the mushrooms have been used medicinally, certain medicinal mushrooms like reishi have been uh, uh, documented in uh, very ancient medicinal texts and have been valued as a healing agent, as a uh, a source of longevity and, and health and represented in, in visual form and written form in, 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 these, in these old texts. So then why, why do you think it is that in our, so much of our Western culture, why is it that we tend to have such a misunderstanding or just general underappreciation of fungi? Good question. And people have wrestled with this for for a long time. You know, why are some cultures mad about fungi and why are some cultures more generally kind of fearful of them? There are no really good answers. I think people have complex attitudes to fungi for lots of reasons. Um, one is that we are comparatively ignorant about the fungal world. Most fungi live their lives out of our sight. You know, it's harder to know them. It's harder to see them doing what they're doing, say, with compared to, compared to a plant. That ignorance can breed suspicion. And um but also you know, fungi can associate with death and decay and can seem kind of uh, dark or, or, or appeal to sort of gothic fears and are often being used as indications, as, as signals of a, a kind of decay or rot or you know, to indicate, say within novels, um, to indicate that kind of filthy, in, um, dank place. Um, I think that kind of association builds up over time. But also, if you are ignorant about mushrooms, um, say you were growing up in the 18th century in England, and there were very unreliable guides to mushrooms. And so you went outside and, and your children were poisoned by eating a mushroom that was poisonous. You know, and it would be perfectly rational, I think, in the absence of reliable information to advise them not to eat any mushrooms at all. It's only when we start to get more reliable information about mushrooms that one can start to be more um, discerning. And, and much of the information um, in the English-speaking world, certainly, um, has been like, quite unreliable until, you know, 150 years ago or so. And you mentioned the kind of gothic attitudes or sort of fear of fungi for a, lo a lot of people in certain cultures, uh, I think probably our, our culture uh, here in America. But I was also curious, had you, are you familiar with the series, I think it was on HBO maybe earlier this year, but The Last of Us with the zombies who are basically coming from a fungal parasite. That show is is scary, it's terrifying. So you think that there is something inherently scary to us as people about mushrooms because of, uh, like you said, the ignorance. We, we're not really sure how they work because they don't really fit neatly into like a clean bucket for us to understand them. Like they're not an animal necessarily. They're not a plant. I kept reading your book and thinking about the duality of the fungi because they're, they're sort of two things at the same time. Like they're kind of opposites where they're organic sometimes and inorganic. They're individual, but then they're also plural. They're sexual, but asexual, simple, complex. Like there's all these dualities. Is it possible to think of fungi or understand fungi without really comprehending or kind of really having a grasp on the sense of duality? Yeah, there are so many puzzling things about them. I think one of the interesting things about fungi is that thinking about them makes the world look different. And they reveal, I think, many of the limitations in the kind of structures and 
concepts that we use to organize our lives. Um, I think our sense of dualities often arises from the rigidity of our structures and our binary classification. If it's, it's either this or this, and it's not necessarily that it is either that or that, it's just that our system is one which forces it to be either that or that. And so we get confused when it doesn't fit into one or the other. Um, and we shuttle around in the kind of duality of feeling confused often. So I think fungi reveal a lot of the places where our, our, our binary structures wear thin and lose their usefulness and where we have to reach for other ways of understanding, more contextual, more thinking about context, the nuances of context, more thinking about ambiguity without having necessarily to resolve it one way or another, um, plurality, and all those kind of shimmering gray areas that, that, that resist definite one way or another type thinking. So yeah, I think, I think it makes sense that we would feel that duality when confronted with the strangeness of fungal life. And I think the invitation that fungi offer us is, is to relax um, some of that rigidity and to think and feel in new ways about the living world. Uh, it's amazing the, the, na the natural world and the living world. And you read about these things and you're like, I, you know, not that truth is stranger than fiction, but just the complexity of these things and how they, they don't fit into that kind of binary system, like you were saying. And you're like, ah, the, the living world is so much bigger than us humans perceive it to be, or it, it doesn't necessarily um, play by the rules or fit into that kind of neat, tidy structure that we would prefer it to, uh, which I think is a good thing that it doesn't fit into that. But you talk a lot about humans' relationship with fungi in the book and plants' relationships with fungi, but you also talk about the relationship that uh, animals and insects have with different types of fungi. So were there any dynamics of that variety of that nature that really stood out to you? Or is there anything specific that you've learned about fungi through other species relationship with the fungi? Yeah. I mean, the insects, um, insects relationship with fungi is extraordinary. There's so many ways to be an insect, of course, and there are so many ways to be a fungus. And I think coming back to what you said in, in your question before, I think there are, I mean, that with the last of us, the TV show, which is science fiction, but there are good reasons why we would feel terrified by by fungi, given some of them live like the lives of gruesome, zombifying powers that can take over and puppet an animal body. You know, there's lots of they, they don't do this to, to humans or, or mammals, but they do do this to insects, and that's what the last of us was based on. And I think it makes I mean it's the perfect material for a, a horror uh, a horror sci-fi story because it you know it touches many deep and primal fears ranging from a lack of control loss of control to the zombie fear you know being a walking dead to being invaded being consumed alive that revolting intimacy yeah i think there's good reasons to 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 feel um that kind of uh, at least i can understand why the last of us came about um, and of course, fungi do cause lots of problems for humans. There are you know, fungal diseases of humans are on the rise. Um, fungi cause you know, damaging diseases of crops. They, you know, a certain fungal disease kills, um, ruins enough rice every year that could feed 60 million people. Um, there is a whole kingdom of life. We have ambiguous relationships with them, sometimes scary relationships with them. Um, although it's only a very small fraction of the fungal world that causes this kind of problem for humans, I should add. But when it comes to insects, there are so many wild relationships. There, there are the kind of um, zombie fungi that we've just discussed that that, that you know, grow into the body of insects and puppet their behavior in a way that suits the fungus. Um, and these are fascinating because how the fungus can get such precise control over animal behavior is, 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 is wild, um, something we don't really fully understand yet. But there are also relationships with insects which um, have led to 
remarkable insect um, societies forming. So termites, for example, macrotermes termites um, or leafcutter ants, both form some of the largest insect societies in the world, and millions and millions of individuals. And in both cases, the leafcutter ants or the termites, the macrotermes termites, they spend most of their lives gathering food for a fungus, which they grow in um, enormous mounds. Um, and they provide the fungus, they, they, they cultivate this fungus. It's a form of agriculture. It's a specific kind of fungus. They grow only this fungus, um, and to the exclusion of other fungi and other organisms. They feed it, and the leafcutter ants feed the fungus with fragments of leaf, and the termites feed it with bits of a wood slurry that they uh, regurgitate. And they're able to um, cultivate the fungus. The fungus digests the leaves, digests the wood, and provides the insects with, with food and allows them to grow into these complex societies. The termites produce, and um, they make mounds that allow the, the fungus to grow in the baking hot, dry conditions of the Sahara. Um, the, the termites are able to provide the fungus with cool, damp conditions uh, because of the architectural features of their mounds. They have galleries and um, vents that carefully regulate the CO2 and the oxygen levels and moisture levels. Um, so th these are really remarkable stories of collaboration between insects and the fungal kingdom that make possible entirely new ways of life. I think the, the fungus insect story is, is very much like that. You know, they have different kinds of um, uh, ways of relating um, and remarkable really across across the board. When I was reading the book, I was wondering how much of these kinds of traits, uh, these features, these quirks, we can use the the mind control of the ants as a uh, pretty dramatic example of it. But how much of this is something that you think fungi evolved over time to as a way of being like, hey, this is a good way of making sure that like as an organism, we survive or we spread if we kind of take advantage of other organisms or if we partner with other organisms this is good for our organism or how much of that is do you think is just some kind of side effect or a coincidence that there's something in the fungi that just happens to do this and it's a strange little thing how much of it do you think is like a survival mechanism versus just um kind of a bizarre side effect well, I think usually when we're, when we're looking at these relationships, we're looking at enduring relationships. So the association between you know, leafcutter ants and the fungus they farm, that's tens of millions of years old, 30 mm -hmm. million years old, 40 million years old. Same with the termites. With the zombie fungi, again, tens of millions of years. So these are quite stable relationships over very long periods of time. Um, you know, humans, modern humans are thought to have um, arisen about 200,000 years ago. Um, this is tens of millions of years ago. Some of them are far from incidental associations, although I think you can definitely get incidental associations as well. But these relationships, even if they go on for a long time, can change. They can. They, there's a, a, a cicada that lives off tree sap, and it's not able to extract from the tree sap as much uh, all of the key minerals it needs. So it has glands where it has a, a, in its body where it keeps a fungus that can help metabolize the tree sap and provide it with key nutrients. Uh, and Japanese researchers were very surprised to find out that that fungus was a was an Ophiocordyceps fungus, a, a very close cousin of, of fungus, that, a zombie fungus. And somehow the cicada had domesticated it and turned the fungus, this Ophiocordyceps fungus, from being a, a, a certain killer into being a, an indispensable um, onboard nutritional partner. You can see these flips over the course of evolution and and and, and you know, friend can become foe 
um, in a surprisingly small number of uh, evolutionary steps. So you do in the book, you kind of give us a little bit of insight into a few of the different uh, adventures that you went on when writing the original book, uh, exploring all these different kinds of relationships between fungi and us as humans. One of the more fun examples, you said that you went truffle hunting in Italy. And I was wondering if you got to taste any of these legendary rare truffles. Yeah, I did, actually. And um, and even better than tasting them was smelling them in the field. You know, and, and, and when as soon as they'd been unearthed, the freshness of the smell there, they were just remarkably vivid. You know, the, the truffle smell is created by living metabolizing cells. And um, you can't dry a truffle, you know, and, and expect to taste it later like you can with some fungi. And so the moment you pick it, this smell is starts to, to to fall off. And, and so by the time it arrives, you know, in, in LA, um, it will be far less vivid in flavor than it was when it came out of the ground. So being there when it's unearthed and, and being able to smell the ground and smell its flavor in context, you know, because these organisms have evolved for this, this flavor has evolved you know, within a certain context to attract animals in that place. Um, so you can smell the way it cuts above the other smells in the forest. You can see how it, um, it sort of drifts in, in relation with other smells and, and catches your attention. It's a, it's a very different experience from um, from tasting it on a plate in a restaurant. So I was very I was excited to, to have that that chance to be in situ with the truffle in its home. And you enjoyed the the smell and the taste. It was a pleasant sensation for you. It was for me. Yeah, I mean it's it's it's, it's not for everyone. Um, I've met people who don't like the smell of these white truffles. I love them. I love the funk. I love the kind of quite high-pitched, like off notes that it's not what you'd expect. And yet it's very much itself. It's kind of like a chord, like a slightly, um, slightly discordant jazz chord, I find, in music. Oh. And, um, <laughs> it's something that I, I, I really enjoyed. And, and once, once tasted, it's, it's um, very hard to mistake for anything else. That's awesome. A different experience that I was curious about was you took some kind of psychedelic drug. Was it LSD or something else distilled from of um, a fungi? But you did this in a controlled laboratory-like environment. And I was wondering if this was, if writing this book, researching the book was the first time that you had done anything like this and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, it was a study into LSD, um, the effects of LSD on the ability of scientists, um, mathematicians, engineers to solve problems. Yeah, it was a remarkable experience. And important, I think it was, it was a powerful experience to me as a scientist. I spent so much of my time doing experiments on other living organisms. And it's nice to have experiments done on you sometimes. You know, it feels like, <laughs> it feels like a key part of scientific training. I wonder how the collected body of the sciences would be different if all scientists had been experimented on themselves at some point in their training. So um, that was an important you know, perspective shift in itself. Um, and a very powerful experience. You know, there's a sense of uh, my mind being much vaster than I normally um, thought of it as. Um, and a, a sense of um, wild places in the mind where one norm wouldn't normally spend time. Um, but knowing they're there changes the way that they changed my relationship with uh, the way I understood myself and selfhood more generally. So that was very powerful. I had taken psychedelics before um, in England in 2004 and five. Um, magic mushrooms, so-called magic mushrooms, were were legal when they were fresh, when they're not prepared, not dried. Uh, it was a loopholes in law. So there were a couple of years when they were being sold openly on high streets and um, 
companies were selling tens of thousands of trips a week. You know, a huge number of people were taking these um, mushrooms because they were, were legal. And um, the loophole was closed soon afterwards, but I think the cat was out of the bag for many people and um, and that door never quite closed. But it, that, that was a time of experimentation for me as well. Would we benefit from looser laws that would allow more people to have access to this type of thing? Do you think that would be good for society or do you think that would be bad for society? I think the current status of um, certainly in North America and the UK, um, as well, let's say federally in North America, because obviously it's very it's it's a it's a kind of a mosaic of of, of experimental deregulation right now in in much of the states. But um, I think the, that kind of um, the war on drugs, what we inherit from the war on drugs type um, drug legislation, is hugely damaging to society, and that there are definitely other ways to organise our societal relationships to powerful chemicals than these often what seems to be very vindictive criminalizing structures and and suddenly when it comes to to compounds like psychedelics which have um many potential benefits to to humans um it seems perverse that they should be classified as they are while at the same time very dangerous drugs like alcohol should be readily available Uh, it feels like um, there are some inconsistencies, perhaps, in the way that this is being um, practiced. So um, I'm not saying psychedelics are for everyone. I don't think they are. Um, I think there are certain things that really need to be in place for them to be done safely. But I certainly think that that um, they uh, they shouldn't be binned with um, uh, and, and categorized as um, in the way that they currently are. So looking forward and kind of thinking about the the future sort of what kinds of possibilities or solutions might fungi help us unlock um in the near future in the distant future are there any that you find like really promising and super exciting yeah so i think humans have been working with fungi for an unknowably long time um in so many ways you know whenever we cultivate a plant we're cultivating fungal species because all plants depend on fungi um, that either live in their leaves and shoots or live in their roots. Whenever we you know, ferment foods, we're usually involving fungi somehow, foods or drinks. So many f- medicines that have transformed human life have started off as compounds produced by fungi, like penicillin. And so moving forwards, I think that, that these basic you know, manners, of uh, basic ways of working with fungi will continue and just you know, deepen and expand. So fungal drugs moving forward. You know, what undiscovered fungal drugs are there? Um, I think they're a great deal. Um, Paul Stamets, the mycology and mycologist, and his team at um, Washington State University have found that fungal antiviral compounds can prolong the life of bees, uh, which is obviously a really big issue right now. So these jungle drugs might not just be drugs for humans, but drugs for animals in trouble that we depend on. I think there'll be a, 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 an exciting and, and long story of, of medicinal compounds produced by fungi. Then fungal foods. Now, growing mushrooms, for example, you can grow. Um, a very healthy and, and often medicinal foodstuff on um, agricultural waste in a couple of weeks um, without needing big fields to do so. There's a kind of alchemy there uh, in, the, in turning turning waste into food. Uh, and I think fungal foods moving forward will be a really big deal for us um, as a species. Um, and of course, they have been for, for a long time already. Fungal building materials, there's a whole new um, field emerging of um fungal building materials by encouraging fungi to grow through say corn stalks 
you can produce bricks or boards or any particular shape you like uh, and indeed a kind of textile like leather like um, material these are um, versatile materials that can replace um, polluting materials and uh, again be grown in a matter of weeks on material that, on on you know, waste that would otherwise be a a problem to dispose of then fields of agriculture and forestry huge areas of human endeavor both for materials for food and for um sequestering carbon and, and helping to mitigate the effects of of climate change and whenever we cultivate plants we're cultivating fungi and there are lots of ways that we can make these industries more regenerative um, and less damaging by uh, becoming mycologically literate by thinking about the lives in the soil by thinking about the associations these plants make um, and uh, working with these fungal associates rather than getting in the way of these um, very ancient associations so those are just a few i think there are um, there are many more to discuss it's incredible i was thinking about uh you know when i was reading the book and kind of like you said a little while ago about how fungi have evolved over millions and millions and millions of years and i'm like wow, us humans are kind of the new kids on the block, you know, in terms of um, life on this planet, uh, especially compared to fungi. And it kind of almost feels like it's fungi's world and we're just the kind of ones who are living in it. They're kind of the, I got the impression that fungi were kind of the unsung heroes or workhorses of the natural world that are keeping so many of these different natural systems together and fueling them or, um, you know, working with animals and having these relationships. And you write a lot in the book about how, to some extent, sort of their bread and butter, if you will, are sort of environmental disasters over the millions and millions of years when there's really strange, bizarre, hard changes going on. Uh, fungi, you know, seize the opportunity and really thrive in those kinds of disasters. And I was thinking about like, well, you know, if fungi really need good disasters, we humans are, are you know, certainly happy to provide those. And with everything that's going on with the climate crisis and everything, I was wondering if you think, are we headed in into like a new golden age of fungi? Because I think that you know, you sort of said that there's all these different solutions. I feel like fungi may be having their their time in the spotlight pretty soon, if because we're going to need all the help and solutions we can get. Yes. So, in in some sense, yes. But there are lots of ways to be a fungus, and so um, we are destroying the habitat of many many fungal species at the same time as we are providing opportunities for other fungal species. When we clear cut a forest, we um, knock out the habitat for a huge number of fungal species that depend on the plants um, and the environment um, created by the plants to live. Uh, at the same time, when we change the climate and change the range of certain species of pest, we might make it possible indirectly for uh, a pest to arrive in a forest it would never been in before and wipe out that forest. And then, and then all of those dead trees are the home to decomposing fungi that now suddenly have a, a, a huge area of, of plant material to rot they wouldn't otherwise have had. So it's no simple story. We're very worryingly doing a, a huge amount of damage to underground ecosystems at the moment. And that's very bad news for us and many, many organisms on the planet because um, the soils are the kind of guts of the planet. They're the place where so much of the cycling of essential nutrients take place. And they're the home to a vast number of species um, without which we would not be able to to live. So 
I'd say in the near term, we are doing more damage to to the fungal world than we are um, providing uh, opportunities. So then that leads me into my next question of how can we as a society, as humans, be better neighbors and stewards for fungi? On a kind of societal level, um, we can include fungi within conservation frameworks. Um, current, many conservation frameworks exclude fungi at the moment, which is a, a problem because without fungi, you don't have the animals, um, animal life and plant life that, that we depend on. Um, so we can um, have more funding for fungal education and fungal research. Uh, fungi are largely absent from school curricula, which is a big problem. So there's that kind of um, pro-fungal um, behavior on a societal level. There might be more ways that fungi are integrated within our food systems. So we might eat more mushrooms um, and in doing so um, be encouraging uh, systems of production that think in terms of cycles. You know, there's the waste from this growing these sunflowers, these stalks can become the raw material for a new type of food, which in itself can replace maybe a more, more environmentally damaging types of food like, um, like meats or at least reduce our dependence on meats and not necessarily replace them. There's that level. Um, as individuals, um, there's all sorts of ways. We can take an interest in these lives unfolding around us. You know, we, can, we can learn about them. We can notice them. When you garden, you might start using more organic fertilization. You might start composting. You might add less fungicide to your garden. You might add less inorganic nitrogen fertilizer to your garden, for example. You might start fermenting foods more in your, in your home, um, introducing these foods to your diet, which would be on the whole, um, beneficial for one's health, but also be educational about the microbial world that we live within. You might leave more dead wood around in the garden or in any woodland that you um, are responsible for. You might, um, or as a farmer, there are so many things you can do to 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 encourage life in the soil. So there's there's, there's lots of ways. It depends who you are and, and where you are and um, and what you do. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a a fantastic list of different things that. Um... Hopefully our listeners will be able to incorporate into their own lives. Maybe not all of those things, but certainly one or two would certainly be very feasible. I was also wondering, we're going to be running out of time uh, momentarily, but I was curious, what's next for you? What have you been working on? What's inspiring you or driving your curiosity these days? I'm working with an organization called the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, or SPUN. Um, and we're trying to map the uh, mycorrhizal fungal communities of the planet. Mycorrhizal fungi are fungi that form relationships with plants. Um, we're trying to make big maps of the, the fungal communities all over the planet and advocate for the protection of underground ecosystems. So to try and encourage decision makers to factor in the lives of, of, of the organisms living in the soil when making decisions um, at the moment the lives of underground organisms are, are normally uh, just brushed over because we don't know who's where. And so these maps hopefully will provide tools that will allow us to to start to change that that story. I'm also working with a, an initiative called the Three Fs Initiative, Fauna, Flora, Funga, um, trying to include fungi or funga within conservation systems, the conservation frameworks and structures. And uh, the purpose of that is to try and unlock funds for for um fungal research and fungal education as well as including fungi in our um, decisions we make about the living world uh, i'm also doing research um with a with a great team in amsterdam into um, fungal life 
um, and how fungal networks are able to coordinate their behavior and, and manage complex trading relationships with plants. And that involves lots of wonderful microscope work, looking inside the networks, looking at the flows uh, and traffic within fungal networks on a moment-to-moment basis. So those are just a, a few a few things that, that I'm finding exciting, but looking at the very small, but also looking at the very large uh, and, and wrestling with the question of how, as, as scientists, we can start to bridge um, the research we do on a very small scale and the research we do on a very big scale. So what were the, the organizations, again, in case our listeners are interested about learning more or becoming involved somehow? Yeah, so spun.earth, S-P-U-N dot earth, is the website for, for SPUN, the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. And the 3Fs initiative or is faunafloraFunga.org. Um, and there's lots more information about that um, initiative there. Some of my projects you can find out more about at my website, merlinsheldrake.com. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation, Merlin. I really appreciate your time. Uh, listeners, if you love nature, uh, if you like or appreciate life on this incredible planet, this is a fascinating and visually captivating book. It's a great gift for anyone who enjoyed the original Entangled Life or really anyone who loves learning about nature and biology. It's thought-provoking and fun, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's really changed my perspective on fungi and educated me in something that I was completely uninformed about. Uh, I think others out there who are equally ignorant or oblivious about fungi will be fascinated with this book uh, and it will stick with them for a long time not unlike the million year old fungi themselves check out the book go check out your you know your own backyard and see what kind of fungi you have there and really just kind of think about fungi more thank you again merlin for writing these books informing us about the importance and complexity of fungi and the uh, microbiology of it all and what we can do to help the good kinds of fungi and uh, subsequently help ourselves. So I really appreciate it. I think your work is really important. And I'm glad that books like Entangled Life are out there and available for readers. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for having me. Entangled Life, the illustrated edition, How Fungi Make Our Worlds is available now at Barnes & Noble and BN.com. Thanks again, Merlin, for taking the time to speak with me today. Take care and keep up all of the awesome work. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of the new, beautiful illustrated edition of Entangled Life. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and we're going to kick things off with one of my all-time favorite book buddies, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. And I appreciate having Mark because I know he's always going to take the assignment very seriously. Be a good student. We may or may not usually all be kind of Hermione's. Mark and I have the same job at Barnes and Noble, and it's a lot of Hermione's, I have to say. However, I am going to kind of make an out of left field recommendation, maybe a little less serious, because um, one thing you might not know about me is that I love to read fungal horror. (laughs) And uh, it's a thing. You might not know this also, but it is a thing. And uh, when I heard about Merlin Sheldrake, I just, I sort of couldn't help myself. Uh, And I am not the only person who notices this. Uh, I was reading an article on Tor.com because, of course, I was looking to add to my collection. 
to my list of titles. I've already read, you know, Ray Bradbury, T. King Fisher did that uh, House of Usher one earlier this year. Uh, River Solomon, Jeff Vandermeer, David Kep. Uh, everybody is writing spore these days, as we call spore based. I think mushrooms might be uh, magic for Merlin Sheldrake, but the idea of like a parasitic cordyceps fungus among us keeps some of us up at night. So I'm going to talk about one of my favorite of all time in that genre, and that is uh, The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. And it's excellent prequel, The Boy uh, on the Bridge, also counts. Consider this a twofer. This uh, series is set in a post-apocalyptic London, actually outside London, because uh, London has already fallen in this novel. And we're soon going to discover that it is overrun by these massive spore-producing fruiting bodies. I'm jumping ahead a little bit because the story actually starts off in this facility outside London, out in the country, that's housing a number of hypervigilant soldiers with guns, uh, a couple desperate scientists, and assorted other survivors of a zombie-style apocalypse. And most importantly, though, it is housing a group of children. And these children, though they, they don't know it, they don't seem to recognize it, they are extremely intelligent versions of the zombies that are always outside the walls. Uh, and they're unlike anything we've read up to in zombie lore up to now. The most impressive among them is this young girl named Melanie. And Melanie is sweet and bright and just insatiably curious. She wants to know everything and she wants to eat human flesh, but <laughs> she doesn't think of herself as a monster. And so she abstains. She doesn't. And she does most of that, um, not because she's under constant threat from these soldiers or because of the scientists who, of course, want to, you know, experiment on her and find out a cure for the zombie uh, plague. Um, she does it because she loves her teacher, Miss Justino. And so for Miss Justino's sake, she learns how to control her appetite and isn't biting people. And she can't because they're literally muzzling her most of the time and restraining her and, and sort of pointing weapons in her general direction. Um, but Miss Miss Justino loves her right back, and she wants Melanie to thrive and not become a lab rat. And so, obviously, if you've ever read any horror book, something bad's going to happen at this facility that's going to force them out into the wild, and that happens pretty quick. It doesn't make the book any less fun knowing that that's coming. Um, Melanie and Miss Justino, a few of these soldiers, uh, the head scientist, and some like red shirt cannon fodder type <laughs> sacrificial lambs. You know, they're going to get eaten, <laughs> are forced to head out into the wild, and they decide they are going to head towards civilization, toward London, to see what's happening. And it quickly becomes clear that uh, it's not just flesh-eating, listless, hungry zombies they have to contend with. It, there are different varieties. There are bands. There are groups. They have different types of intelligence. Some of them are sort of ignore you and other ones are definitely coming for you if they spot you. So Melanie is able to interact with all of these different zombies, though. She's sort of guiding them on this tour. And as they're coming through, you know, you're thinking, oh, well, it's an apocalypse and nature has sort of taken root and reclaimed the earth. But it's also a little weird that there are these giant mushrooms, <laughs> like the size of buildings, uh, sort of springing up everywhere. And they have these huge spore pods. This is not just a societal collapse. It's not just a usual, like, you know, you get a bite from a zombie and now you're gonna, you know, become one or you're gonna die. 
uh, there is a there's a there's a mushroom problem happening in this book. And so they have this double-edged fight going on between this band of survivors, all these groups of zombies, the the childlike smart zombies who you sort of want to protect, even if they are trying to bite you, and then spores. <laughs> extremely persistent fungus <laughs> so it's a thrill a minute but uh weirdly it's a very beautifully told story with wonderful characters and i and i really do uh heartily recommend it whether you're into you know mushrooms or not uh mark <laughs> i'm sure you're gonna be more serious <laughs> uh honestly oh slightly but i think you make a good point in that the spore <laughs> genre even something like the show the last of us has directed readers to Sheldrake's book. So all of the pop culture references for fungal takeovers are really getting readers curious about the natural world. And I think that's where Merlin Sheldrake is really able to shine in in a beautiful way because he lays it out so wonderfully and so uh, has such insight. But you get that the fun viewers and readers who want to kind of go that step further. So I think that was an excellent pick. Plus, a fantastic book and it's so messed up and thrilling and wonderful <laughs> i am gonna go well we'll say serious adjacent i chose a book that has been on my shelf for a good long time i purchased it just from the cover alone um it's called wicked plants uh the subtitle is the weed that killed lincoln's mother and other botanical atrocities it's by amy stewart it is a bizarre but entertaining microhistory that homes in on the plants that are going to mess you up. You have like some examples like the psychosis-inducing ergot fungus. So it attaches itself to wheat or rye and mimics it in a way that it's undetectable until it is consumed and makes you cuckoo bananas crazy. Or something like the oleander flower. Beautiful but has been used in many a murder. The book also contains really lovely artwork by Brian E. Morrow Cribs and Jonathan Rosen that just kind of adds the something lovely to the eeriness of these descriptions. The plants are also noted uh, and tagged for their specific type of, we'll say, crime. So you have illegal plants, you have things that cause pain, you have destructive plants, intoxicating dangerous and of course deadly it's arranged alphabetically and it's also interspersed with very fun mini chapters that just kind of expand on the kind of macabre goings on of the natural world i just think it's a great gift the cover is lovely it's like this bright shocking toxic green and i think it's just a good one to have on a shelf and a great one to give for plant lovers in your life the writing is solid there's a splash of humor injected in as well And it's just a fascinating look at the more villainous members of Flora. So that is Wicked Plants by Amy Stewart. Please check it out. All we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.